This is episode 71 of the SSR podcast, also known as episode two of our second ever New Reads November series. That's already feeling like a few too many numbers, so why don't we just move on to the part where I tell you all about the awesome new IA book we're talking about today. Ashley Poston's The Princess and the Fangirl was published in April of 2019 as the follow-up to Geekerella, a fangirl fantasy tale. Like its predecessor, The Princess and the Fangirl is a retelling of a classic fairy tale story. In this case, the author puts a twist on The Prince and the Pauper. There's Jessica Stone, a young Hollywood starlet trying to figure out where her career should go next after her character in the movie reboot of the beloved Starfields franchise gets killed, and Imogen Lovelace, a Starfields-obsessed fangirl on a mission to save Jessica's character Princess Amara so she can come back for future movie installments. The two cross paths at a fan convention, and since they oh so conveniently look almost identical, Jess engineers a plan for them to switch places so she can try to figure out which convention goer is responsible for leaking photos of the new Starfield script. Imogen will appear at events and panels as her movie star lookalike, while Jess goes undercover. The script being leaked has her name on it, and she can't risk any additional hits to her reputation, especially since the Starfields fandom has already chipped away at it by tearing her down mercilessly on social media for her portrayal of Princess Amara. Like other life swap stories, the princess and the fangirl has its two main characters learning valuable lessons about how green the grass really is on the other side. Imogen learns that her beloved fan culture can actually be pretty mean, while Jessica learns that she has an opportunity to be part of something much bigger than herself as a member of the Starfields family. There are important messages in this book about how others see us versus how we see ourselves, the power of reinventing yourself, and the pitfalls of fame. Let's just say that after reading this book, I am very happy not to be a celeb. As a 2019 release, The Princess and the Fangirl also incorporates a beautifully breezy sense of diversity in terms of race and sexuality, and takes a deep dive into the relatively new developments around fandom, conventions, and the science fiction universe. We cover all of this on episode 71, and I also try to get myself invited on a trip to Disney World with author Ashley Poston and today's guest, Rachel Strolley. Rachel Strolley is a youth librarian, blogger, and former bookseller. According to her boss, she knows every single YA book. This might be an exaggeration, but she does know a ton about YA. Follow her at Wreck-It Rachel on Twitter and Instagram, and that's Wreck as in R-E-C, and at WreckItRachel.com. A big thank you goes out to Rachel for joining me on this episode. A big thank you also goes out to each and every one of you for continuing to love and listen to the podcast. Producing and hosting SSR really is one of the most fun things I do, largely because of this community and its love of reading. Don't forget that this is an independent pod, meaning that I'm a one-woman show, literally, that functions outside of a larger podcast network. Your support at every level is what drives SSR forward. You can show that support by leaving five-star ratings or reviews on iTunes, tagging the episodes you're listening to in your Instagram stories, sharing the podcast with your bookworm friends in real life, picking up SSR merch at www.ssrpodcast.com shop and becoming a Patreon sponsor. All those details are available at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast. But to put it simply, patrons get the satisfaction of playing a more active role in SSR's growth with their monthly contributions in exchange for exclusive rewards like merch, input on book selection, on-demand recommendations, newsletters, bonus episodes, and more. You can contribute as little as $1 a month. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of the Patreon supporters tuning in now. I couldn't do this without you. Be sure to stay engaged with SSR on social media throughout New Reads November and beyond. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. One final reminder before we get into the episode, and it's a timely one because with holiday travel coming up, you're going to need plenty of good things to listen to, and I can help you out at a great price. Next time you want to listen to an audiobook, try Libro FM. 
Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. When I shop for audiobooks on Libro.fm, I support my favorite Brooklyn indie books are magic, but you can choose any story you want. Why not check out some of these new Reads November titles via audio? I can't wait to hear what you think. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. You are the second episode of our second round ever of New Reads November. Yay! It's historic stuff going on here, and we're talking about The Princess and the Fangirl. I was very excited that you picked this one, because I've been seeing it everywhere, and because, like, most of my YA and middle grade reading is allotted to these, like, older titles, I don't have a lot of time to, like, hand-select my newer YA reading. Kind of the selfish reason why I do New Reads November. But I had been especially excited about The Princess and the Fangirl, because the cover is so cool, and I just have never heard of a book like it before. So I'd love if we could kick off by you just sharing like why this was the pick, if you'd read it before, if this was the second time you read it for the podcast, like tell me everything, the princess and the fangirl from your perspective. Well, so I love Ashley Poston books, Geekerella, which is like the first one of this. They're not a direct series, but they're companion books. Um, I had really loved that one, which is a geeky Cinderella, as it sounds like. And then Heart of Iron, which is her sci-fi Anastasia in space retelling. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And so I knew that I was going to read it no matter what. And I was really excited for it. I love anything that's like, we're going to switch places and that's going to be our solution to things. Like, it's one of my favorite tropes ever. I mean, classic, like, parent trap just grand stuff right there grew up on it love it need more of it I agree and anything that pulls that trope in and also pulls in like geeky stuff and fandom and conventions it's just a winning equation winning combo so you gave me a little piece of intel before we started recording about a certain trip that you're taking with a certain person yes And I'd love if you could share, because listeners, I've decided my goal by the end of this episode, not to be inappropriate or pushy, is to get myself invited on this trip. Yeah, so we're actually, um, Ash and I are going to be in Disney together. Um, We're going to do Y'all Fest and then go to Disney. Ash is the author of this book, everyone. Like, I want to go. I love Disney World. Love books. Spoiler alert, I really enjoyed this one. I'm just saying we have like roughly maybe 57-ish minutes for me to like get in on this and I feel good about it. Um, 
but we, we can pretend I'm not being a creep about it. We'll move forward. Some quick facts about The Princess and the Fangirl. Published in April of 2019, as you mentioned, it's the second book in this Geekerella universe. I have not read Geekerella, although now I'm very interested in doing so. Rachel, you look very excited, as if I need I'm to. I'm so excited for you. Okay. I am excited to read that one. I do feel like the interesting thing about it is that Cinderella is sort of like a more well-known story. So I would think that maybe it's easier for readers to pick up on some of the like callbacks to that fairy tale. The Princess and the Fangirl is based on The Prince and the Pauper, which I think most people sort of understand the basic premise of that. My preferred Prince and the Pauper retelling until this book was the Wishbone version. I don't know if you were a Wishbone watcher as a kid, but he did Prince and the Pauper. And I feel like, I think maybe I had the book adaptation. Like they did, they did Wishbone books. And I think I had the Prince and the Pauper and I definitely watched that episode several times. So that was my like former reference point for that story. I feel like there was a Barbie one, like that was the princess and the pauper. And so for a really long time, I never called it the prince and the pauper. I always called it the princess and the pauper. So I feel like the princess and the fangirl is the perfect, like, just change one word every time. So prince and the pauper, princess and the pauper, princess and the fangirl. Yeah, so you were already in the mindset of it being the princess focused instead. So you mentioned a little bit one of the pieces of this book that pulled you in the most is this idea of like incorporating this awesome like geekdom and fandom. I am not like personally involved in this kind of fandom, but because I've worked in the book world, because I've gone to BookCon and like several other conventions and I have a few cousins that are into it, like I feel like I have a sort of passing understanding a little bit of what it's like to be involved in these worlds, but I had never read a book about it. I haven't really seen a lot of pop culture that specifically focused on what it's like to actually be a fan in this way. Are there a lot of books coming out that you're aware of that tell this kind of a story, or is this really like one of the first? I know that there's a couple that have taken place at conventions. Um, There's the Geek's Guide to Unrequited Love, which I think was a 2017 book. And then last year we had The Pros of Cons, which was a three-author book. I think that was last year. Um, And I think both of those are convention books. It sounds like it is becoming more of like a common setting, which I think is really great. And my assumption is that there's such an overlap. And part of this is because most of my experience with conventions has been a book on the overlap between teens that like to read and then teens that are involved in going to conventions and in being fans the way that Imogen in this book is. So it makes sense to me. And I totally get why people have just eaten these books up because A, they're really well written and they're super fun. But B, I think there's like this connection point maybe with readers that they haven't found before in other stories. So the setup in terms of like who the prince, who the pauper equivalents are, we have Jessica Stone, who's like the movie star. And then there's Imogen Lovelace, which is a great character name, by the way. Like, wish my name was Imogen Lovelace. And the two of them find themselves at ExcelsiCon, which is sort of like a smaller version of San Diego Comic-Con, which as far as I know is like the biggie. Like, that's the big one. So ExcelsiCon sounds like it's like still a fairly legit convention and one that people are very excited to go to but sort of on the smaller side in Atlanta, which I thought was like a good reference because I feel like Atlanta is like the hottest place these days. So it makes sense that it would be in Atlanta in 2019. Yeah, and some Chelsea Con background in Geekerella, the Cinderella character, Elle, yeah. who does make an appearance in Princess and the Fangirl. Her father actually was one of the like creators behind it. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, I need to read the first book. I did when I was yeah. like just reading through reviews and blogs about the princess and the fangirl today just to get ready to talk to you. I picked up yeah. on like a few little fun facts from Geekerella that yeah. sort of informed my understanding of these characters, but I feel like I would get even more if I read the whole book. So I might have to do that coming up. Um, so they're at this convention and they're sort of brought together in this unexpected way by Starfield, which is kind of a Star Trek equivalent. And Jessica Stone is starring in the reboot. I believe it was a sh- like a long running show, maybe in the 70s or 80s. And they've brought it back as this like blockbuster movie. And Jessica Stone is in the lead role of Princess Amara. Amara. And there's all this controversy going on because her character has been killed off in the first movie and there's a second movie coming, but nobody knows what her involvement in it is going to be. People just have a lot of feelings about it all over the map. Jessica herself has a lot of feelings about it because she used to be this quote-unquote, like, prestige actress and was nominated for all of these, like, sort of conventionally prestigious awards. Um, And now she's in this, like, blockbuster movie and she's not sure how she feels about that, especially because she's getting a lot of hate from Starfield's fans who don't necessarily love her. And then we have Imogen, who is the fangirl, of course. And she is at Excelsicon because, A, her moms are, like, super involved in fan culture and they're there with a booth. But also, Imogen has been the one to start this whole movement to save Amara on Starfield. And she's gotten, like, 50,000 signatures on her petition and, like, is handing out pins. It's, like, a whole project. So she's there because, like, she loves Jessica's character. And the crazy thing is, they look a lot alike. Intrigue. Yeah, so they run into each other in the bathroom. <laughs> They're wearing the same beanie, right? Because that was just a that was a coincidence. Because at first I was like, I wonder if I thought maybe they did she give her the beanie? No, they just happened to have they had bought the same one at the con. Space Queen. Space Queen. Yeah, they had the Space Queen beanies, and Imogen, as a result of wearing the same beanie and looking very similar to Jessica, ends up being like pulled onto a panel and kind of realizes that she has a new kind of power in her movement to save Amara. Um, So I pulled out a couple quotes, so I'll share these as we go through. And uh, one quote that I found of Imogen's where she's talking about why she's on this mission is she says, I can't exactly say that I want to save Amara because I want to prove I'm not a waste of space. I'm not no one. I might not be good at many things. I can still be exceptional. I'm not just a raindrop in a pond, but a comet plunged into the ocean, and I can make waves the size of skyscrapers because I'm not just here. I'm living. Just like Amara saying she didn't want to be a princess. She was terrible at it. She wanted to do something more to make her father, the Knox King, proud. So I started a hashtag and wrote articles and think pieces and put a hashtag Save Amara petition online that got over 50,000 signatures. And I set money aside to split a booth rental. So that's kind of how Imogen has found her way here. What were your first impressions of Imogen? Really quick, though, funny thing yes. is that I marked that exact page oh my to gosh. talk about, to make sure we talked about it. We're like, in sync already. Oh, my god! It's the exact same. Yeah. Imogen is so freaking relatable. I mean, I know so many people who have worked in, like, booths at conventions. I mean, I've worked a booth at a convention. It wasn't, like a fandom booth it was a bookstore booth um so very different but it's so cool how into it people get and how the interactions with every person are so specific to what that person is a fan of and the connections that you make with people and so Imogen really just diving headfirst into this campaign that she's created is just sort of like the best example of like a positive infinite source of fandom you know you get the 
negative source of fandom when you get like the bros complaining about Star Wars adding like Rose and you get people who are questioning you at every turn as to why you don't like that Game of Thrones has like incest and like sexual violence because it's historically accurate even though you explain to them that it's a fantasy series so the history is made up so it's nice to have a really positive portrayal of that like fandom that lives so much inside of you that you have to express it in some way and Imogen I think is the perfect the perfect example of that. Well, her passion is so genuine. Like, she's so there for the right reasons. Like, she, you can tell that she lives and breathes it. And so much of it seems like she's grown up in this family where fandom is, like, a part of life. Her moms obviously, like, love pop culture and are excited to be part of the convention. They own, like, a figurine shop where they, so they bring their booth. So this is, like, part of who she is. And it just seems very honest and earnest, like, the way she talks about Starfield and her campaign. She's 17, and I think that's such, like, a funky time anyway. It's, like, a hard time to really own who you are. It's a hard time to even like know who you are to begin with. And I think as much as Imogen kind of like feels that she's not sure who she is, she actually like is pretty sure of who she is. I think maybe she's just like afraid to be like totally open about it. And I think that's the great juxtaposition between the two characters too, where you think it's going to be because, oh, one's a movie star and one's like a regular girl. But it's actually just because, you know, Imogen has this very like positive energy radiating towards this thing and Jess has this sort of negative energy radiating towards the same thing and Imogen sort of knows herself better than Jess does even though you would think that Jess because she comes off as like very confident and sort of aloof um, you think that Jess probably knows herself better but it, it's this, it's swapped and it, Ash just does it so well and you never feel even if you don't look at whose point of view you're in, you know whose point of view you're in, which is so hard with contemporaries, especially if a character looks exactly the same as your other lead character, you know? That's so true. <laughs> I love the way you put that because when I was flipping through the book itself today and just like pulling out some quotes to share while we talked, I was just kind of like looking for some of the larger blocks of text that I had highlighted and then just jotting them down, not necessarily knowing right away which chapter it was in. Because listeners, if you haven't read the book, it's told in alternating viewpoints between Jess and Imogen. And to your point, I didn't always need to check to see what chapter I was in. Like I could tell, even if it was like, dialogue from somebody else like I could tell which of the characters was interpreting the dialogue or I could tell which of the characters was thinking that text so I think that that speaks to Ash's writing like I'm here I am I'm calling her Ash we're friends now I know obviously. I'm sorry it's just a, it's a habit <laughs> sorry. Ash Ashley if you're listening sorry for being so casual um but no I just think it speaks to her strong character development and the writing it was just easy to pick up where I was just by like flipping through and seeing a few lines of text. So that was pretty cool. I found a really interesting quote in one of the reviews I stumbled on from the Geekiary. And the writer said, one thing that made me sad was that the people closest to Imogen recognized Jess immediately, but very few people who knew Jess can tell that Imogen is not her. I tried very hard to suspend my disbelief. So they go on to say that they're not sure that they bought that. I don't think that that's the issue here. I think it's just more interesting sort of as a matter of like the way people see you. Imogen's family was so close to her and knew her so well that her brother, her moms, her like people could tell right away that they had done a swap. And Jess, Jess has an easier time getting away with the swap because she doesn't have anybody that's super close with her except Ethan, her friend and assistant who was in on the swap from the beginning anyway so I thought that that was a really interesting commentary and one that I hadn't thought about before 
but like adds another interesting layer to just like the different places that these characters are in in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Jess sort of feels that too, where she's kind of like, she doesn't want to get caught. You know, she doesn't want people to realize it, but there's a part of her that's like, but like, why doesn't anyone notice that we're different? It's like a cry for help a little bit. Yeah, and it's sort of sad because you know that Ethan would know. Ethan would definitely know. You know, they've been best friends forever. He's working as her assistant right now, but he already knew. Like, there's no one to give her that sort of validation, which I think goes back to the whole which character knows themselves. And the answer is, like, Jess does not quite have it yet. Like, how can anyone else know her if she doesn't know herself? She's just struggling like the rest of everyone, basically. Well, and she's older. She's older than Imogen, too, which I hadn't thought about so much either. But, like, the fact that she's the more insecure character and, like, doesn't know herself very well and has so much left to figure out. I feel like the difference between being 17 and being 19 is, like, pretty major. Like, so much can happen in those two years. Yeah. And the fact that Jess is still struggling, it does make me sad. But what were your other first impressions of Jess? She wasn't, like, the most likable up front was my take, but I kind of knew that was going to switch. So I liked that. Like, I liked the evolution that we get from her. But what were your first impressions? We meet her when she's, like, basically sulking because she wants to be able to take some other jobs, but she can't because she's waiting to find out whether or not she's going to have to hang around to do, like, flashback scenes in the next Starfield movie. And that pisses her off, which... I kind of get, like, you want somebody to tell you if you're going to have to work or if you can go look for something else to do. When I was just rereading it, because I read this before it came out, um, but when I was rereading it in preparation for this, I was thinking about when we first meet Jess, and I don't know if you were paying attention when this happened in the news, but when, um, it made me think of when Fresh Off the Boat got renewed, and Constance Wu had this sort of, like, not a meltdown necessarily, but visible displeasure Hmm. about something, Um, And later it became clear that, like, because her contracts kept her with the show, um, she had to give up, like, a play that she really wanted to do. And that would have been really, like, a challenge and really different for her. And so it really made me think of that because Jess is really looking for this, like, indie movie. And then the director is just like, hey, I don't think you're going to work for this anymore because you're this princess now. And you're, like, in the fandom view as opposed to in, like, the critical view. And so she's like well, I hate this now. And so she fires back accidentally a lot. Her emotions get the better of her in interviews. And it's a hard, hard line to walk where she's trying to be put on a good face. um, And she's really not feeling it inside at all. It is an interesting idea to explore, like just what it means to have to sort of pick a lane as a celebrity. And I think it's probably like extra interesting as a teen, or at least it would have been for me because I was obsessed with celebrities when I was a teen. And I still am kind of like fascinated by celebrity culture, but not as much. But I like lived and breathed People Magazine when I was younger. And I think that I would have really like Rachel is laughing at me, listeners, in case you're wondering, which is totally (laughs) fine and I totally understand. No, I think I would have really loved the idea of, like, getting in her head because I would imagine that this is a very real problem. And I think when I think through, like, some of the biggest actors and actresses out there, like, there aren't that many that straddle the line effectively who can, like, do the equivalent of, like, a big Marvel movie 
and also do more of an indie film. I guess Natalie Portman is maybe a good example because she's done Star Wars and then obviously has been very successful in, like, you know, quote-unquote more critically acclaimed movies. So she's one that I would say. But it's hard to strike that balance. And you can see Jessica getting, like, really frustrated and worried about getting typecast. And that is sort of, I would think, the worst-case scenario, especially as a young actress because you're looking to fill another, like, 40 or 50 years in Hollywood and, like, you want to make sure you have options. She also has lied about her age. So nobody knows that she's 19. She lied to get her first audition. I think she was 14 when she got her first movie and she said that she was 18. So people think that she's in her 20s. She's just in way over her head in a lot of ways, which I just think makes all of her feelings about like the casting situation and her next career move feel that much more overwhelming. Also, like to be 19 and to be making this level of decisions about your like millions and millions and millions of dollars career that's like really scary I wouldn't want to make those decisions now well I think the other hard thing for Jess too is like it's come down to a point of what if her most successful project is the one that she's remembered for but it's not the one that she really feels with her heart and soul I think that I keep bringing up pop culture things. I love it. Keep them coming. So when Richard Harris was initially approached to play Dumbledore, he didn't really want to do it because he had had this career that was really great. And he's like, I don't want this to be the thing I'm remembered for because it's a big budget thing. And so it makes you really think about that. I mean, he ended up taking it because his granddaughter said she would never talk to him again, which is my favorite thing ever. But it really makes you think, like, what's more worth it? You know, your legacy uh, as, like, someone who can lead, like, a huge budget film and someone that can touch people, but something you don't really feel or, like, something that you're proud of that you really love, even if it's not necessarily the most successful thing. Like, is it more important to fill your own, like, heart and soul or is it more important to touch as many people as you can in a really impactful way? even if it's not something you care about. Yeah. Well, one of my key takeaways from this book is that I'm really glad that I'm not famous. Um, Honestly. <laughs> she was really tortured. Like, she had a she had a lot going on, and I think part of it was, like, we get some references to her family, but she doesn't seem to have, like, any regular contact with them. She refers to, like, some nice conversations with her mom, but we don't see any of that. Like, she's lucky to have Ethan, who, as we mentioned, is her, like, longtime best friend and has now become her assistant, but... She does seem pretty alone. And so it was just really sad. I was just really sad for her. I think that was like the first thing I wrote down in my notes was like cautionary tale about being a celebrity Um, because she's just in a way over her head. But anyway, so the action of the book really kicks off when at one of these panels, at one of these events, the director of Starfield hands off this like big stack of papers to Jess. And she's in a, she's having a moment, like she's having a moment where she's upset that she is not able to take some of these other jobs that are being offered to her. She doesn't take the time to actually look at what the papers are, and she just like throws them in the trash. At the moment, I actually didn't think that much of it. I was like, oh, that's kind of weird because I'm sure there's something significant about it, but had no idea <laughs> that it was going to turn into the crisis that it did because... All of a sudden, somebody on Twitter is leaking photos of different pages of a script of the second Starfield movie. And Jessica ultimately realizes, like, oh, crap, that was probably the script. And what if somebody pulls it out of the trash can? It's now my fault that this, like, script is getting leaked. And we also are, like, on the edge of our seats to find out what the script is going to say about whether or not Jessica is actually going to be in the movie. So, like, 
really a high stress situation and this is why they decide to switch because Jess has now taken it on herself to like go figure out where the script is track down the person who stole it because she's afraid that if people find out that it was her script and she's like now going to be held accountable for releasing all the secrets of the second movie the fandom is going to hate her even more than they already do which is a lot and so she's basically like okay Imogen we got to get that girl that looks like me back and if she could just pretend to be me for a couple of days so that I can take a break figure out where the script is then it's all gonna be fine and Imogen's reaction to this is sort of I think at first she's unsure but ultimately she like realizes that maybe she could have some impact with her campaign she says I try not to think about what could happen to my hashtag save Amara campaign if Jessica Stone backed it I got a taste up there on the panel and I can't get the sweetness out of my mouth Starflame, it was intoxicating people actually listened to me to us imagine what I could do with a little more time so she's like starting to think about what it could mean for her um and I liked the way that she was like kind of I think she this is when she starts to talk about how she's a Gryffindor and she's like well what else could I do as a Gryffindor like I had to do it <laughs> it's that body swap moment that we all live for as uh, childhood fans of the parent trap and at first Jessica doesn't tell her that she needs to go look for the script which I thought was interesting why did you think that she was so secretive I mean I guess that she didn't want she didn't trust Imogen quite yet and she didn't want Imogen to like go around and tell people that it was possible that Jess might be at fault for losing the script, but I thought it was interesting that she held out for so long. Well, you never want to admit that you possibly did something wrong to a total stranger. Yeah. You know, um, especially because she doesn't really know. She's not sure what happened to her script. She's not sure if it really is hers, if it's somebody else's, if somebody else is doing the leaks. So it's really like you just need a moment to gather the information first. And she only gets that moment because Imogen takes her place. And so it could have gone either way with her telling Imogen what was going on. But I think if I was in her shoes, I wouldn't have said either. I would have been like, I just need I just need some time. <laughs> just things have been really rough, you know, and just trying to find a more complete picture mm-hmm. before lobbying accusations either at somebody else or at myself. I guess I'm so inherently, I'm like such an apologetic person by nature that I would feel like I had to have a reason. (laughs) I would have to like explain why I would need somebody else to be my stand-in. But I guess you're right. Like I, I felt such warmth toward both of the characters right off the bat in this book that it was hard for me to realize that maybe they hadn't been feeling that that same warmth for each other right away because I do feel like the author like really makes you fall in love with them even though they're both a little prickly in their own ways so I feel like my instinct was like oh they must love each other right away too but now that you say that like there was some distance for a while like they had to really like get to know each other but luckily we have Ethan to help orchestrate all of this and or we love Ethan how much do we love him he rules so much. Okay, tell me all the reasons why you love him because I feel like you I feel like you got him. Listen, I just I'm a real big sucker for anything that's like sort of a hate to love or frustration to love trope. And I also love anything that's got a guy who starts out super grumpy towards the girl he's definitely going to fall for in the end. Like another book that does that really well is Over in the Adult Side, Well Met by Jen DeLuca. Oh my god, so grumpy, so like frustration to lovers. It's so great. And Ethan is just, he's such a good friend to Jess. And he is sort of thorny to Imogen, but it's out of a protective nature. And honestly, that's the best the best reason to be thorny, right? Yeah. Is to protect the people you care about. He's very loyal. He's, he's very loyal. He's very uh, 
cautious about secrets and about friendships and about who he trusts. And he just he just really wants the best for Jess in whatever form it takes. And he's one of those sort of like old souls, you know? Imogen thinks he's older than he is. And she's like, but you were wearing a suit the other day when he was actually just 18. Yeah, I, I like that that was, like, her marker of being old. It was like, oh, if you're wearing a suit, it means yeah. you must be, like, an You wore adult. a suit one day. You must be in your 30s. <laughs> you know? It's, yeah. And he just, he's very put together, which is great, because Jess definitely does not feel put together at the moment, at the start of the book. And Imogen is... As much as she is put together, she's thrown into a situation that's so wild and spectacular that you're just like, how How did your brain even process that? There are no celebrities that look anything like me. So it's not like I could switch places with someone. So the fact that this just happens and she's like, okay, okay, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go with it. It's fine. Great. We're going to do it. And like, she just, she just rolls with it. And so Ethan is just there to be like the, okay, guys, here's where we're at. He's sort of like HQ for the whole operation because he's the one like sort of watching out for Imogen, making sure she's doing a fairly good job of keeping up appearances that she looks like Jessica. And then he's also like vaguely aware of what's happening with the real Jessica. And he's the only one for a long time that even knows a long time. I mean, this whole book takes place over the course of two days, but for a chunk of the book, he's the only one that's keeping the secret. And he's, like, a nervous guy by nature. Like, when he gets nervous, he irons and cleans, which I really appreciate as somebody who does not not do things like that when I'm nervous. So he was also just, like, the perfect character to be sort of, like, saddled with this kind of intelligence. Like, he's not cut out to hold this kind of secret for a long time. But we get this great sort of, like, brief, one of the, like, the classic makeover scene where Jess is sort of, like, trying to make sure that Imogen looks like her. And there's a wig involved because Imogen, while they have very similar facial features, Imogen has, like, a fun pink pixie cut. And that won't do for Jess. Although I feel like it would have been kind of cool for Jess to debut a really cool pixie cut at the convention. But obviously wouldn't have been (laughs) as fun for the story if there wasn't a makeover involved. Um, and then Jess is like, oh, I don't need to do anything with my hair. I'm just going to wear the beanie the whole time. So they do their swap. They're kind of trying to figure out how to talk like the other person. Imogen is really good at imitating Jess, which I think is probably just because she's such a fan of Starfield and of like pop culture in general that she is able to imitate the way that Jess speaks and like her mannerisms and everything. And they do the switch and they're off going to do their own thing. So Jess is tasked to go sit at Imogen's booth with Imogen's internet BFF Harper, who's helping her with this campaign. They've pooled their money, as we mentioned before, to have a booth so that they can get more signatures for their Save Amara campaign and hand out pins and like actually try to get Jess's character saved and sort of keep her part of this movie franchise. Imogen is going to go like work all the panels and everything as this movie star that she's become. So they're like they couldn't be living more opposite versions of their normal lives. We're talking Prince and the Pauper, everyone. Remember, it's a huge swap, um, very intense identity changing. There's a spark between Jess and Harper pretty quickly. I was like amazed by how fast I felt that, and it didn't feel forced at all. It actually was like very natural. Well, Harper's great, just in general. Yeah. And it's really convenient that Imogen and Harper haven't actually met in person. They're internet friends, and they're supposed to be meeting for the first time. And that really surprises Jess, because she almost has a heart attack, basically, because she's like, oh, God, oh, God, this person 
who she talks to so often, and then Harper's like, it's so nice to meet you in real life. And she's like, oh, okay, we're fine. All good, all good. You're an internet friend. It's cool. Um, And so it is a pretty immediate spark, and I think it surprises Jess, too. And she's not super focused on it. You know, she's very much, like, driven to find out what's going on with the script and who it is and whether or not it's her fault. And so she's she's not like, everything is now Harper. She's the only thing I will ever think about again. But she notices it, for sure. And the fact that all of this is going on and that she even notices it is saying something. But they just, they have really compatible souls, I think. And Harper is sort of exactly what Jess needs, especially in that moment in time. Because it's like, you know, they're they're still in their teens. You know, you don't know if they're going to be together forever. But at this exact moment, they are what the other needs and wants. And it just sort of comes together, at least for a little bit. At least for without now. Without spoiling anything. Yeah. Oh, do you know more? Do you know what's going to happen after this no, book? No, but I, I don't, I wasn't sure how much we were spoiling for folks who hadn't read all the way through well you can spoil within this book but i i sort of feel like maybe you know things beyond the princess and the fangirl as a friend of the Um, author i know the very basics Mm -hmm. but i don't know anything specific all right i won't press you further on it's it's beauty and the beast (gasps) and it's van oh my gosh i'm freaking out i'm freaking out that sounds amazing yeah it's it's gonna be amazing and i think it's Mm, I think I heard a title that wasn't the actual final title, so I'm making sh- I'm double checking and making sure that Bookish and the Beast <gasps> is what it's called. Oh my god! Yeah, this is excellent news. Know. So, like within this book, right? Spoiler alert! So once Harper finds out about the switch, she gets really pissed off. Understandably, you know, so that was that was what I was more getting towards. Because oh. like, it's not all it's not all hunky dory the whole time. There's some real sense of betrayal in the middle there, but it's all good. There's got to be a betrayal. Like we got to we either has yeah. to be a hiccup for there to be like has an interesting rom com and the big reveal, and then you have to have the good the good really solid uh, public declaration of love. It was a good one too in this book. Two really great ones. All I mean, I really can't think of a scene that I didn't love in this book, but I do want to pause for a second to talk about one of the things that I think is so great about this book and one of many things clearly but it's something that I think is so great about a lot of the newer YA that I read and that I read last year for New Reads November because I read a lot of older books for the podcast and even books that are written like that were written in the early aughts or so anytime there's a queer character in any of those books there's always sort of like a crisis around it or there's a whole coming out narrative and one of the most beautiful things I think about new YA and I feel like you can speak to this as like a teen librarian who's talking about these things as the avid reader that you are in a book like this it's sort of just like such a casual part of the story and I did find in my research that I guess Jess had openly talked about dating girls in Geekerella and I didn't have that knowledge um so I thought that it was even like more casual than that because I thought that it hadn't even ever come up but I just think for queer teens the fact that books that are written today for their age group don't necessarily have to focus on sexuality as a major plot point that needs to be like discussed and analyzed and broken down and like tortured over as somebody who reads a lot of older YA where this is not handled well or even not so old YA it's just such a breath of fresh air to see that books are being written like this yeah well if you think about it in terms of like if this story if you had the major plot points and you took it back in time, right, to, like, 10 years ago. And even, like, you saying, like, 
with Geekerella, she talked about casually having dated girls, right? But if it had come out like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there definitely would have been a scene where she was like forced to come out or whatever. It wouldn't have been that casual. So still, even the fact that she's just able to be really laid back and just discuss it like it's as normal as it is, is really really great stuff and the fact that like Imogen's got two moms mm-hmm. um, who are both so great and they are so loving and they just it's none of it's ever a big deal because it just is what life is yeah and her brother's and, gay and there's a whole conversation yeah. about how like his coming out in their family was no big deal but he still wanted to make sure he talked to Imogen first because they're so close and it wasn't necessarily like a fear thing as much as like I just love you and I want you to know what's special about me before anybody else does. And I think, like, the fact that he was this, like, all-star football player and Jessica is a movie star. Like, these are not sort of traditional teenage stereotypes that we often see depicted within queer relationships in older school pop culture. So, like, the fact that not only are these relationships being put front and center in a book like this, but also that there's, like, there's no single category in which those people get to exist. And that makes it that much more beautiful um, because I just think it, like, widens it widens the conversation for kids of all ages to like understand, as you said, it's a very normal thing. And I think just eliminating those stereotypes that maybe we saw in pop culture 20, 30, 40 years ago is really healthy. Absolutely. So I'm trying to think of where we even go next because there's so much good stuff. Let's talk <laughs> about Ethan and Imogen because I love their relationship. Listeners, I'm sure it's going to shock you, but of course, <laughs> Ethan and Imogen fall in love with each other. Or maybe not fall in love, but they might fall in love. They're definitely falling in like They're into each other. And I loved all of the scenes where they're flirting. There's some tension because Imogen can't quite like convince herself that Ethan isn't having a crush on her just because she looks like Jessica. Like she kind of has the sneaking suspicion that he's always loved Jess, but like he can't have her because she's out of his league and she's not interested in him. And so that's why he's interested in Imogen because like she's kind of like the next best thing. But we find out that that's not the truth. He actually really does like her because Jess isn't interested in the things that Ethan's interested in. He's interested in the stuff that's going on at the convention and Jess is not at all. Like she's literally just there because she's being paid and Imogen shares a lot of his interests in terms of like movies and TV shows and fandom as a whole. There's like a really great scene where they're in the hotel pool. Can we talk about yes. how cute that scene was where they're like splash? <laughs> She's in the dress in the pool. I want to see it in a movie. Well, it's so great too because he comes into the pool and he's like, I saw you in here. You know that the pool is closed, right? <laughs> and eventually she pulls him in. She just yanks him in. And then, of course, they have a moment when they're closer than they think they are. And she notices the flex in his eyes that she never noticed before. And then mm. they don't kiss. The tension <laughs> builds. She's so into him. And I just thought their interplay throughout the whole book was really well done. It reminded me a lot of, like, the awkward crushes that I had when I was in high school um, where like you're not quite sure how the other person's feeling but it does seem like there might be something there but you don't want to let yourself believe that because it will feel really awkward if you're wrong but you don't want to let go of it because what if you're right I just think that it's captured so perfectly in this book that's exactly it yeah I loved it I loved it so I think we should talk more about like the central conflict for Jessica because that permeates the whole book also. Um, She's really struggling with the toxic side of fandom. And as somebody that doesn't 
have a deep knowledge of fandom personally. This was something that I was reading more about after I read the books. I just like, this is all new for me that there is this really dark side of the fan culture um, and of the geek culture, sci-fi and fantasy in particular. This kind of runs rampant, especially for women in the industry, which I didn't know. But if you think about the fact that like celebrities of all kinds are picked apart constantly on social media in particular, it seems as though that heat is just dialed up exponentially for women who are in sci-fi and fantasy movies and TV. Daisy Ridley was a name that I saw come up a lot in the blogs and the articles that I was reading. Um, She's taken a lot of heat and has really been like so insulted and it's been people have been horrible to her. Um, People who love the Star Wars movies and are loyal to the older versions have been horrible to her. So my sense is that Ashley like really pulled from that in putting together Jessica's conflict, which is that they're all comparing her to the original Amara from the old Starfield. Her name was Natalia Ford and people are obsessed with her. Um, And she feels like she'll never hold up not only because she's insecure, but because people are telling her that she'll never hold up. She's getting so many tweets and so many Instagram DMs where people criticize everything from her performance to her face to her boobs, like everything. She just can't get it right. And so she walks into the convention feeling like this whole world that she's tried to become a part of is against her. And I can't imagine how crappy that would feel, especially because like she has devoted the time to make this movie. And she probably thought that it was going to be the kind of thing that endeared her to all of those fans because she's like now part of this whole like legacy around Starfield. But it's actually the opposite. Like what she's picking up on more is the negativity rather than the sense of positivity that's coming from a lot of people that are loyal to the franchise. Yeah, Daisy Ridley was definitely a name that I was thinking of. And it's definitely a trend with Star Wars, especially. I mean, Kelly Marie Tran and Daisy Ridley, I think both deleted social media at one point. I don't know if either of them has come back. I think Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things deleted stuff too. And she's literally a child still. Like she's a teenager. And it's really rough because, yeah, the guys don't necessarily get the harassment. You know, I don't remember what it was like when the first Star Trek reboot came out with Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto. I would have remembered if it was bad to the extent of this. Of course, I don't know if social media's poll was quite as large. Um, in, I think it was 2009, and I don't, I definitely was not a Star Trek person at that point in time. I was a junior in high school, and I know that people very much came around to them, Zachary Quinto, but the girls get it so hard, you know, and it's just, you hate to see it, and Jess really just, she just really has a tough time. It's not the first thing she ever wanted to do, and so I'm sure every Spidey sense she had that was telling her, like, maybe you shouldn't do it. Now she's regretting not listening to it and just the amount of fan entitlement that people feel towards products that aren't theirs. And that's the thing about fandom, right? Is that you love this thing that someone else has made. And then the second it doesn't go the way you want or the way you expected or someone isn't the way that they were in your head, it gets toxic so quickly even though you loving the thing did not make it yours you know it's still the creators Mm -hmm. it's still in the hands of other people you know other people are responsible for making it they're the ones signing the checks no matter how much you love a thing the experience will uniquely belong to you no one else will have the same experience that you will like reading a book no one's gonna read the book the same exact way but at the same time you have to remember that there is sort of a wall there. There is an element of you don't own this thing. You don't make the decisions. 
and decisions that are made that aren't the way you would make them isn't going to ruin your life. It's different when it's like the government, but it's not. It's a book or a movie or a TV show or a remake. You know, so many remakes recently. So so many remakes. (laughs) So it's very, I mean, it's very relevant. So Darian in the first book, Darian is the prince character for folks who have not read or remember from earlier is seen initially for Gigarella as this like pretty boy who like doesn't deserve the part but then like everybody comes around because they see how much he loves it and he's like so great and they just really liked his portrayal and he's cute so of course they like him and then it makes it even easier for them to like him when they realize that they can also hate Jess. It's so much easier to love somebody if the person next to them is someone you can hate because then it seems like the love cancels it out mm. so much so just just in a really hard place like she's not gonna no matter what she does she feels like she can't win well and it's such an interesting commentary too because everything that you're saying makes sense i mean as somebody who loves lots of pieces of pop culture like i get defensive about reboots and remakes like thinking about whether or not they're going to be messed up and i'm not even like part of this culture that I do feel like is even more passionate. Um, I do feel like the sci-fi and fantasy communities are even more passionate, but I even, I understand what you're saying. And I think what's really challenging is that people take it to such a personal level with Jess in a way that I never would have expected. But I, I see when I look it up, I'm like, oh, this is how it actually happens for people. And I pulled out a few quotes. Jess says, the internet makes it easy for us to forget that there are people on the other side of those characters. And whether you like us or not, we are people too. So your hot take shouldn't dehumanize me or tell me I'm wrong or that I'm worthless or a slut who slept on some casting couch for the role because I'm none of those things. And it's so, so hard to remember that when the internet just keeps echoing it back to you. I think that a lot of teens can relate to that in some small part because social media is such a hard place for kids and there's so much bullying and meanness happening. So I think even the fact that like this seemingly confident, successful movie star is dealing with this, that must be a good reminder for kids that like people don't have the right to treat you this way. It's really messed up that this is how so many use social media, but like it doesn't make any of those things that are said about you true. Something else that Jess says is calling me names, critiquing my body and my bones and my career. This is just the thing I didn't want, just the thing I tried to stay out of. But really, I should have known it would come to this because I'm not just a woman in Hollywood. I'm a woman in fantasy sci-fi Hollywood. Not only are the roles less prestigious, they're subject to the criticisms of trolls who are dissatisfied with my accomplishments, my looks, my talent, my breast size, and who blame me for anything and everything they find wrong. What's worse, I know this is just a small portion of them because I am white and straight passing. Actresses of color get mobbed for merely existing. I just love the fact that there's also this sort of like bigger picture political bent to all of this where the author is like trying to represent this larger problem that goes on in Hollywood. Also, when you bring in race and sexuality, like it becomes that much more complicated. So I am always impressed when an author like takes a story that seems like it could be like kind of light and fluffy and sparkly and adds all of these additional layers. And that excerpt in particular, I think like really shows that off about this book. Yeah, I think she does a really great job with the acknowledgement. And it's really nice to have a character like Jess that does have that acknowledgement because so often, you know, you get like Scarlett Johansson's who are like, I can play any role because I'm an actress and that's how it works. And then you have Jess who's like, hey, I have all this privilege. This is bad for me, but it's worse for others. And she's just very aware of the larger world around her, which 
sucks. The world shouldn't be at a point that you have to be so aware all the time, constantly, of what your position is in a larger picture. Like, you should just be able to live your life. And that's not the world we live in. That's the dream. So the fact that Jess is aware of this while still going all through this horrible stuff is like, oh, hey, a nice reminder that you can be going through horrible stuff and still be a good person and still acknowledge the privilege you have and the fact that if you were in someone else's shoes, like the consequences might not be the same. The reactions might not be the same. They might be worse. They might be better depending on who you are. Yeah, she's very wise to the bigger issues that are going on around her and to her privilege, which I think is so important. Obviously, the beauty of the swap, as in any swap plot, is that both of the characters are going to learn a valuable lesson. Um, To sort of sum it up, Imogen realizes that there's this darker side to fandom and that she needs to be more aware of sort of the way that like the movements that she's pushing might impact people. She realizes that she's not trolling in the same way that some of Jessica's trolls are trolling, but she also knows that like her passion about the things that she's passionate about may have hurt people in ways that she didn't expect. And she, I think just gains an appreciation for like who she is as like a real human who doesn't have to deal with quite frankly, the bullshit that Jessica does. Um, And then Jessica gains a new appreciation for this community that she's part of that she really, like, disrespected before and, like, was patronizing toward and thought was silly. Um, And she learns a lot from Harper, who basically is like, I know that you think that the only important stories are the ones that are prestigious and, like, give you the chance to analyze yellow wallpaper on a wall, even though there's no, like, (laughs) real dialogue. But what we really need are stories that give you hope and make you laugh and give you the chance to see characters that fall down and get back up again. Um, And so they sort of like both come to this appreciation of Amara as a character. And I think they both like begin to see themselves in her. Jess says, Starfield isn't going to win any awards and Starfield isn't going to fix everything that's wrong with the world. But you know what? Sometimes the stories we need are the ones that can show us a happy ending and make us feel whole and welcome and loved. And that I think is the true magic of Starfield, of watching 20 Amaras through a small camera lens strike the same pose, of howling a theme song off key, of debating its economy and its politics and its world building and whether Carmenter's uniform is really the perfect shade of blue and then she goes on to say i only saw the parts of starfield that didn't want me but amara belongs to all of us she taught me how to be bold and powerful and she taught us that we can make mistakes and be better that we don't have to be perfect we can just be enough we carry her with us love it i mean there's this like great feminist message this is clearly like a princess who doesn't need to be saved they talk about that a lot and the fact like she's the hero at the end like she gets to make this like bold statement and like it's sort of the focus of everybody's efforts is so cool like she's not just a princess she's a super cool princess yeah and there's the great the really 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 great moment at the end where natalia ford you know the original actress who played amara you know she's sort of been presented throughout the book as someone who is sort of intimidating to jess someone that she can never never feels she can live up to a very much larger than life shadow and the ending you get to know because the spoiler about the script is that it was the director leaking the pages it wasn't jess it wasn't jess good job jess but he gets fired and natalia takes over as the director and so it's really another moment that shows jess that amara isn't an ending she's a beginning she might be a pit stop before a turn and that 
her options aren't going to be limited forever. You know, directing and acting are wildly different mediums, um, even though they're the same. They're both in a film. It's still Starfield, but you have to have a very different skill set to do either one. And it's rare that you come across someone who can do both exceptionally. And so there's this really great moment of just, like, this person who was this, like, authority figure becomes, like, a really great cornerstone for just to sort of relate to as opposed to be frightened of and intimidated by yeah she inspires her to reinvent herself basically and is like if the worst thing that ever happens to you is that you're typecast as an actress for being in starfield then you can just go do something else and be just as good at it and like go be a producer or director so i liked that a lot too um and i think it's a good lesson for everybody to like it's never the end you can always reinvent yourself and start again overall when we look at the princess and the fangirl What do you think are the best things about this book when you compare it to books that were written 20, 30, 40 40 years ago? Like, how does The Princess and the Fangirl show off the best parts of the evolution of YA? I think it's great because there's no, like, life or death circumstances, and it still moves. You know, there were a lot of books that either had really, really high stakes or were just moseying along. Like, I am going to the grocery store. Let's walk down this aisle. Oh, look, it is my friend Bob. Hello, Bob. What are you doing at this grocery store? I thought you lived in the next town over. But Princeton Fangirl takes place over a weekend. Yeah. You know, very. it's very quick. There's definitely conflict, but it's not something that's going to make you freak out because someone's going to die, you know? And the casual nature of the queer characters just existing and living their lives as a straight person would where you don't have to come out to everyone and you just sort of get to like who you like and that's just how it is and you don't have to make a whole big speech about why you like them as their gender you can just make a whole big speech because it's the rom-com thing to do and it does so much so well where it's it's so relatable and I think will continue to be relatable it's a really smart thing that Ash did was have Starfield be sort of like the Star Trek of the universe, right? Because it's something that everyone still knows. It seems, it feels very contemporary, right? Like it's sci-fi, like you think like big budget, but at the same time, like Star Trek has been around since the sixties, you know, it's not something that's just going to fade into obscurity really quickly. Even if they don't keep rebooting Star Trek, which seems very unlikely to me, they're definitely going to reboot that until like, forever it'll always ring true a little bit there'll always be that connection and it really does it's the best parts of fandom and rom-coms i mean you get two big public declarations of love one on an escalator one with stealing a dress in front of everybody and two actors of two different generations making a scene so that they don't have to get caught and it just combines everything it's such a good way where it shows you that books can do so many different things at the same time and they don't have to distract from each other and they don't they can still all feel authentically like they belong to the same book whereas I feel like books from a while back felt like they could do like one thing or they could only be a certain level of whatever the thing is a certain level of pop culture because we want it to be as relatable to as many people as you can. And that's the great thing about YA today is that people have sort of realized that you can be relatable to a lot of people without being an exact copy of the people that you are relatable to. And I think Princess does that really well. Very well said. 
thank you for that analysis. I think everything that you said is right on. And I think, I mean, also just the subject matter, like a book like this never could have been written 10, 20, not even 10 years ago, probably like 20, 30, 40 years ago, the idea of this kind of a convention and this fandom is unheard of. So just in terms of like it being a piece of the times and like something that's really beloved to a lot of people, I think is really cool. Other than the princess and the fangirl. I know this is going to be an overwhelming question for you, so I'm just going to prepare you for it. What okay. have you been reading lately and loving that you would like to recommend? Oh, yeah. It doesn't have to be YA. It can be whatever you want it to be. I can see you're panicking a little bit. Don't. There's no, no okay. wrong I'm, answer. I'm pulling up my spreadsheet. I have one, too. You know, I just it's been a crazy library week, so I just don't remember, honestly. I haven't read anything like actually this week um i'm reading gideon the ninth okay which is an adult book um and it's about lesbian necromancers in space cool which pretty much was all i needed to sell me on the book um and i'm about halfway through and the world building is just so good it's really funny because ash and i had actually talked about it at book expo and she was like you're gonna like it you're gonna like it it's a little denser than you usually read so it's gonna take you a bit longer and I was like no it'll be fine and then I'm like it is pretty dense but I do like it so really what I'm hearing is I always should listen to her but it's I mean it's because like there's more text on the page you know adult novels there's not as much white space necessarily between the lines so it's you look at it and you're like, oh, it's 400 pa- 450 pages. I can do that. And then you're like, but it's longer than you think. It's a different kind of 400 pages. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm also reading um, Woven in Moonlight by Isabel uh, Ibanez. And that one comes out in January from Page Street. It's a Bolivian YA fantasy, um, Bolivian inspired. And it's about a girl who takes the place of, it's a, it's a, place switching one as well perfect um she takes the place of the condessa who is supposed to be being sent off to marry this like butthead of a dude right because royalty and she's sent in the place of the actual condessa and she's supposed to be marrying him and none of them actually realize that she's plot like the condessa in reality is not there because she's plotting against them Ooh, juicy. Um, yeah, so I'm about halfway through that one, too. It's so good. The author actually designed the cover, too, which is amazing. Cool. Um, like, I don't know if I've ever seen that, except for, like, in, like, graphic novels. Right. So those are two that I'm reading right now. Um, in terms of things I just finished, um, I finished um, Sonia Hartle's Have a Little Faith in Me, which is about a girl who gets uh, broken up with after she and her boyfriend have sex because he's, like, a born-again Christian, and he goes to, like, Jesus camp. And so she's like, I'm gonna go to Jesus camp, and I'm gonna win him back. And she brings along her best friend who pretends to be her boyfriend. So there's some fake dating in there. Fun. Oh, that sounds really um, good. I think I would like that. So that she can make him jealous. That's also from Page Street. Lizzie Mason's going to be so proud of me. She's the head of publicity there. Not intentionally. It just sort of happened that those two. Shout out um, to Page then, Street. Yeah. And then uh, Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics, which is a girl-girl queer romance novel, historical romance which I read in like an hour and a half because it was 
it's so read like it's just very devourable which I think is a good thing for a book to be and that's a great word and I will include links to all of those books all those great recommendations (laughs) in the show notes for this episode along with the link to the princess and the fangirl I loved it I'm gonna try to read Geekerella ASAP and I will of course also include a link to your blog Wreck It Rachel R-E-C of course Um, but check out the show notes to get a link to go right there Rachel I'm so glad that you guessed it on this episode we can talk about the Disney World thing later I don't want to put you on the spot you don't have to extend the invite right now we'll follow up we'll take it offline Um, but in any case I'm so glad we got to chat about this book and I just really appreciate your time yeah absolutely and I will give a shout out because um, if you want a Space Queen beanie um, you can actually get one there's um, Fan Mailbox which does like themed swag boxes and Fan Mailbox has a princess and a fangirl box that has um stuff by artists like jordan denae who's my favorite and a couple other folks and they have a space queen beanie in it so you can feel like you're really in the book that's really cool i'll include a link to that also i'll make sure we have that so that listeners can check that out love that thanks for squeezing that in we need more people need swag people need to feel like they're involved in the world exactly exactly well with that thank you so much and have a really good rest of your night you too bye thank you Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.